If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Joint Action. This podcast is dedicated to all those out there who have osteoarthritis. On the show, we unpack the truth and demystify the myths about the disease and its management. If you have joint pain and want to know more about how to manage it from the world's best experts, you have come to the right place. Without further ado, it is time to welcome your host, David Hunter. Hello and welcome to this week's show. Before we get into the content that we plan to discuss today, a quick plug for a workshop that we are in the process of organizing in mid-October. It's called Mind the Gap, and ostensibly it's an opportunity for us to engage with basic researchers, clinical researchers, healthcare professionals, and patients with musculoskeletal pain to try to identify the gaps and breakdowns in misunderstandings between those different entities. Specifically, we're going to mine the gap with an intent to try to identify solutions that will facilitate translation. So if you're interested in attending the workshop, we'll include the link for registration on the website. So please go along, have a look at the program. If it's of interest, register for the workshop, and we look forward to interacting with you there. Obviously, don't hesitate to give us any feedback about the podcast or the program through email on the website. Look forward to hearing from you soon. This week, we have the privilege of discussing implementing dietary change. Now, there's plenty of good evidence to suggest that diet, and in particular, weight loss, has an important role in improving pain and function in people with osteoarthritis. It's very easy for a healthcare professional to tell a person with osteoarthritis to lose weight, but deploying that advice is substantially more challenging. 
Where does one start? What are the key principles about changing often ingrained behaviours? Are there simple tools that will enable someone to track their progress? What dietary interventions work best? I might have lost weight, but how do I keep it off? The purpose of this episode of Joint Action is to unpack this complicated and often personally challenging area and identify what tricks there are to losing weight and keeping it off. And we're joined by none other than Rosie Venman. And Rosie is a clinical dietitian working at Royal North Shore Hospital. And Rosie received a bachelor's degree in food science and human nutrition from the University of Newcastle and a master's in nutrition and dietetics from Sydney University. At Royal North Shore Hospital, she's been working as the osteoarthritis chronic care program dietitian for the last four years and has a keen interest in improving weight loss outcomes for this patient group. Rosie, welcome to the show. Thanks, David. Great to have you here and very much appreciate the time you've taken out to do this with us. And the first instance, usually at this part of the show, I try to get to know you a little bit better so the listeners can also get to know you a little bit better. But if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? So I say I'm a pretty practical person. I'm very inquisitive. I'm always wanting to learn more. I'm also quite caring. And I think that also comes with just working in health in general. Um, I am quite adventurous and also um, quite nerdy as well. (laughs) Sounds like a brilliant combination. (laughs) Dig into a little bit more of that adventurous nerd in a second. But from a professional standpoint, can you tell me a little bit more about what you do on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, so I guess in the field of osteoarthritis, I'm a part of the uh, OACCP program at Royal North Shore Hospital, and I'm part of a multidisciplinary team. So I work with a physio, a social worker, a rheumatologist, an occupational therapist, and together we help improve patient outcomes for those people who have osteoarthritis. So my role in that clinic is usually to help people lose weight. Um, As you were saying, we know that weight loss can really help improve outcomes for these patients, um, pain um, and their symptoms. So that's my key role really in in helping those patients achieve their weight loss outcomes and often improving their diet quality as well and taking that kind of holistic approach to, to looking at their health and their diet. Brilliant. And I know you make a great difference for all those people out there with osteoarthritis and it's that's greatly appreciated. Now, let's dig into that little adventurous piece that you were mentioning a moment ago. But when you're, when you're not doing your day job, what is it that you like to do? I definitely like food, as probably all dietitians will tell you. But another thing that I really enjoy um, and have been getting more into is a bit of rock climbing. And that's yeah, part of that adventurous spirit coming out. Um, I was lucky enough before COVID to go overseas and spend some time in the Alps and really um, enjoy that and wanting to pursue that side of my personality um, more and more. How, how often do you rock climb? Probably go every couple of weeks when we can find time. Um, really enjoy the Blue Mountains um, and there's lots of local bush crags around that we go to as well. So, oh, yeah. so, sounds like a great activity. Yeah. Now, getting onto the topic of the day, what are the key dietary strategies that you often find yourself giving advice for in people with osteoarthritis? So I think it's always individual, but there's often a common theme, common themes that go through um, the sort of strategies that we use. I think for a lot of people, more and more, um, mindful eating is something that we try and encourage a lot of patients. So that's 
taking time, you know, to appreciate your food and not eating quickly. And I think that's something that, yeah, I'm definitely trying to encourage more and more. Other sort of key strategies are around more general things like portion control and proportions of, you know, protein and carbohydrates on a plate. And then also adjusting people's meal patterns, encouraging them to eat more regular meals and um, not miss meals as well. Uh, I guess other things that we're starting to use a bit more of are, are more intensive approaches to, to weight loss, and that might be, you know, five to style approaches or um, the use of meal replacements in helping to achieve a fa- more faster weight loss. Yeah, so just digging a little bit more into a couple of the concepts you spoke about there, in particular um, the portion control and the balance, but balance between uh, protein and carbohydrates. For a person who has osteoarthritis, what, what would be optimal? Mm. It's a good question. And I think because activity levels are often quite low in this population, their energy needs are also quite a lot lower. So typically carbohydrates are something that we try and uh, reduce in the diet. They're obviously still very important in other ways. But so in a proportion of a meal, for example, a quarter of your plate might be your carbohydrates. So your potatoes, your rice, your pasta, and then another quarter of your plate might be your, your lean meat. And then the rest is really vegetables and that's what we try to encourage is trying to build your meal around vegetables rather than building it around, you know, your big steak or, or your mashed potatoes, that sort of thing. Yeah. So you remove so much the flavours and things and bring, bring in the colourful things, right? <laughs> exactly, yeah. 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 Veggies taste good. <laughs> uh, what are the patterns that you find most common that are problematic in, in the population again that we see? I think portion size, as we were just talking about, because a lot of people have eaten the same way from when they were a young, active person and haven't adjusted their meal pattern or meal size, especially maybe after retirement. Uh, And the same goes with their pattern of eating. So they may have always uh, missed meals because they were busy working and they're continuing to do that. And then we get into the realm of non-hungry eating or like habitual eating in the evening. Um, I guess another thing is with more sedentary lifestyles um, and boredom eating, seeing a lot more people eating lots of discretionary foods or junk foods, and that makes up a big proportion of the calorie, daily calorie intake. Um, And that also goes along with alcohol too. So in this patient group who may be more sedentary, um, yeah, those sort of themes come about more often. And, and again, it's obviously hard to generalise and you want to individualise as much as you can. But for people who might have skipped meals in the past, was that particularly breakfast and were they having more of the caloric load at night time? Mm-hmm. Um, and from a discretionary source perspective, do you think that's potentially influenced by some of the, the lack of caloric intake earlier in the day? Yeah, yeah. So I'm often seeing people skip breakfast and then they come home from work and they're starving and they want to eat everything that's in the cupboard, which is fair enough because their body's really asking for nutrition the whole day. And they're often also really dehydrated as well because they are busy and they maybe skip drinking too. And then food choices towards the end of the day, maybe we're also tired and stressed and we tend to reach for things that give us that mental hit of sugar and fat and so you're right, often we see people who um, reach for junk food at that time of day as well. Yeah. I mean, so obviously counterbalancing that, you, the advice would be try and shift some more of your intake earlier in the day. Try not, try not to skip those meals. But how do you pre-plan avoiding uh, raiding the cupboard and having bad food choices later in the day? Yeah. 
I think it starts with your grocery shop for a lot of people that they need to really think about what they're bringing into the home because if it's there, your eyes are going to see it and you're going to want to eat it. So if you can start by looking at your cupboard and really trying to finish off or get rid of the things which are you know are going to be calorie dense like your biscuits and your sweets, chocolate, um, and even things like sugary cereals and muesli bars that you may reach for when you're hungry, trying to fill your cupboard full of things which um, are low in energy density and healthy like fruits and vegetables and whole grains as well. Yeah, no, brilliant. Now, obviously, a lot of those concepts are probably more related to for a person who's got osteoarthritis who may be above a healthy body weight. Are there other common dietary pieces of advice that you might give for a person who's got maybe a more systemic inflammatory problem that may travel part and hand in hand with osteoarthritis, like reducing inflammation and changes that you can advocate for in a diet? Yeah, and there is a little bit of evidence around kind of a, not so much an anti-inflammatory diet, but eating foods which support our body and, and might reduce inflammation. So um, the Mediterranean style diet is often something that we kind of go towards. And it's not just, I guess, because it's got a lot of those healthy omega fats and, and those sort of anti-inflammatory sort of style um, ingredients. It's more, I guess, in general, a healthy diet. So less saturated fat and and fatty meats, more whole grains, pulses, those sorts of things, which are generally quite healthy. I would also say that junk food is something that can contribute to obesity and also, I guess you could say it's an inflammatory sort of food in that way too. Yeah. And so for the Mediterranean-style diet, just expanding on that a little bit further, but my understanding is that they tend to promote foods that are probably richer in omega-3 and reduced in omega-6. But what types of foods have more omega-3 and which have more omega-6? Of yeah. the common foods that we might eat in a Western diet. Yeah, so foods high in omega-3 would be things like your oily fish, uh, maybe your mackerel, sardines, like sardines um, and salmon. Again, just thinking about the person who has osteoarthritis, who's above a healthy weight, there's lots and lots of different diets that are out there that you know you hear about them in the lay press. You have friends come along and say, oh, I've done brilliantly on this. What options are there? Yeah, there's a lot of information on the internet and probably a lot of information for chronic conditions that can make it very confusing. So I think we've got to take a lot of the stuff that's on the internet with a grain of salt and really, it is hard, but you've got to think about the evidence that's behind it um, and who also is behind it. Um, is it coming from a reputable source, um, maybe a government source? But with that in mind, there has been a lot of talk about foods that can worsen osteoarthritis, um, but we know that there's no evidence for those sort of foods, like, for example, avoiding tomato or, or those sort of uh, high purine foods, or people would say, or nightshades. So uh, those foods we can definitely, and they're very healthy for us. In terms of diets that uh, dietary approaches that people can take for osteoarthritis and weight management, um, a, a low calorie diet or a low energy diet is, is, I guess, a first step. So reducing your total energy intake. Um, and then we can move then forward into things like 5-2 uh, style approaches or intermittent fasting or using things like meal replacement, so increasing the intensity of, of the diet approaches. So what is 5-2 what is and what's 16 and 8? What, what do those numbers mean? So a 5-2 style diet is probably, I guess, a broad concept now. I think a lot of people are taking it in different ways. Uh, but it's mainly around reducing total calorie intake on just two days a week. 
um, around 500 to 800 calories on those days. And um, you can do it in the days consecutively or in between days. I guess the aim is to reduce your total energy intake for the week, but you can eat what you normally do on the other days. I was reading something recently where uh, people who did this style of diet, you, you'd think they would eat more on the other days, but they actually um, ended up eating the same or less. So it can be quite an effective strategy for a lot of people. However, uh, I guess it's got to be for the right person. It's got to be for someone who has the time to put into those two days and who can fit it into their lives. The 16-8 is based on hours of fasting. So that might be skipping one meal in the morning and, and eating later in the day or, or vice versa, maybe um, skipping dinner. I, I don't really know much about the evidence around that sort of fasting approach. I guess, like I was saying before, skipping meals altogether can sometimes be a little bit difficult in your hunger throughout the day and getting enough nutrition. And we also hear about these concepts of LED and VLED. And what, what do they mean? So LED or, and VLED are either a low energy diet or a very low energy diet. Um, and those terms, the low energy diet usually means we're in uh, a deficit of calories or you know, around 500 to 1,000 calories. And then a very low energy diet can be as low as you know, 800 calories a day, for it, so very low in energy. And the very low energy style diets typically focus on aiming towards ketosis or a ketogenic style diet. Um, and that basically means we're not using glucose or carbohydrates for energy anymore. We're using fat as our source of energy. Yeah, brilliant. So we, we'll dig into those a little bit further in a minute. But from the experience that you've had dealing with people that have got osteoarthritis, what, what options have you had success with? I think more recently I've had more success with the intensive style approaches, so using things like meal replacements or very low energy diets. But I've also had a lot of successes with mindful eating and portion control and just take, looking at things on a broader level um, and allowing patients to just take a step back and look at everything that they're doing. So it just depends on the person that you're working with and what they're willing to do as well. Yeah, so get, I guess giving a plug for dietitians, what, one of the things presumably you do when a person comes along is that you spend time with them, potentially do a diet or, or ask them to do a diary of what they've done for the previous few days and identify where the issues are. Is that something that people can do on their own or would you advocate that they come along and see someone and chat to them about it? Oh, it's definitely something you can do on your own. And I honestly feel that writing your food diary down can almost be the first step in helping to reduce what you're eating because you might see it on paper and realize kind of all the things that are adding up often we eat automatically especially when we're hungry and we forget that we've eaten that chocolate bar because we were just so hungry and we just needed to eat it so I think everyone should be writing you know you can write what you're eating down just to get a perspective and even improving your accountability to yourself but definitely seeing a dietitian I'll just plug us a bit more but it's really good so that we can help tease out the things that you might want to change. We look at all the food groups and we look at maybe the areas where you could improve on, not just with calories, but also with the nutritional quality of the diet as well. Yeah, brilliant. So for a food diary, I mean, obviously there's paper forms that people can get off the internet. What do you think of people uh, using um, uh, evaluation tools like MyFitnessPal, like an app on, an mm. app on an iPad that allows you to 
input the food, it gives you some idea about the caloric and nutrient value of those foods. Is, is that a, another resource that might allow you to do something similar? Yeah, definitely. I found great success with people using those sort of apps. I think there's Easy Diet Diary, My Fitness Pal, there's also Calorie King, there's quite a few out there. Um, and that, if you're tech savvy, is a really quick way of quantifying what you're eating. And often in these apps now, you can also look at the um, macro or micronutrient composition of your diet, which can give you another insight. Um, so that's another thing that I've actually seen a lot of success with as well. Brilliant, brilliant. All right, now let's dig a little bit more into a couple of those options which you've had success in, both the low energy and very low energy diet. You've explained a little bit about the differences between those two, but if a person were interested in deploying a diet like that, where do they start? How do they get going? Yeah, and you can, you can actually buy these sort of products off the shelf, but I, I would really encourage people to see a dietitian and speak to their GP before doing diets like this because often we're changing our complete diet and we're changing our nutritional composition. And it's really important that we get that right. So that these sort of diets and these sort of uh, this sort of weight loss can be managed in the long term. So if someone was to come to me um, and we we talked a bit about using these diets, the first thing would be to think about what sort of approach they wanna they wanna take. So as I said, they could do something along the lines of a low energy diet. So that might be using neural placements for just one or two meals a day, or they might want the more intensive approach in replacing all of their meals. So really nutting out how feasible it is going to be for them to use these new replacements and how yeah how intensive they want to take it fantastic now um from the viewpoint of i guess some issues that i think you probably know a hell of a lot more about than i but what are you any comments about the nutritional adequacy and side effects a person might get while they're on those new replacements like diets, there are a lot of things on the internet to buy. Um, there are a lot of meal replacement brands out there. And that's another reason for seeing a dietitian or speaking with your GP to make sure that you are choosing one that's going to give you the best nutrition. And whether maybe if you are using a particular one, you might need something extra in your diet, like a multivitamin or something like that. So I think some key nutritional things to look for in a meal replacement are um, the protein content. Because if you're not eating full meals, you're not going to get those normal proteins that you're having. Uh, the other thing to look at is the carbohydrate content. Because if you're aiming to get into ketosis, you obviously want that to be very low. And then the other thing is the micronutrients or the vitamins and minerals that are in there. And we want to make sure that you're getting enough of those. So if you are having only meal replacements, you're getting everything your body needs every day to function. Are there any side effects that you've, you're aware of for people who go on meal replacements? So people who do the more intensive style approach using only meal replacements, some of the things they might experience, and probably the one I've seen the most is a change in their um, bowel habits. So they might end up with a little bit of constipation. And a lot of that is probably due to having no, you know, no carbohydrates in the diet. So they're not having the same fibrous foods they were having. They're only having veggies. And then also, they probably need to look at how much fluid they're having. They tend to maybe drink a bit less. So that's one thing we definitely encourage. Other side effects people will likely get in the first couple of days is hunger. And that is a very normal thing. And that's the hardest thing to get through in those first few days. The good thing about going on a ketogenic style diet is by the kind of fourth day or so, hunger actually subsides. And it's one of the benefits of going on that sort of diet. It's good to know because I think a lot of people, when they first start on it, they get on it for a couple of days and they say, well, gosh, this is way too hard. I'm never, never going to survive. Yeah. Now, are there any 
people out there with particular diseases that we shouldn't be advocating diets like this for? Yeah, so the, the I guess if we're talking the, about the more intensive style um, ketogenic sort of diet or using meal replacements, we've got to be aware of some chronic conditions, some conditions that maybe their medications needed to, need to be managed. And this is another reason I would always say people need to speak to their GP. So things like high blood pressure and diabetes definitely need to be monitored if you're going on a diet like this. And also people that have maybe chronic conditions such as renal disease, they need to be very closely, closely managed by their GP or their specialist. We also should think about maybe the older population with these sort of diets. Often they may have lost a bit of lean tissue or muscle tissue. And so we want to minimise losing that further. So fast weight loss, we might want to consider as not so much of a first option for that group. Yeah, and I think the other, the other point that we made a few weeks ago when we were talking to Steve Massier around the role of weight loss is that it's really important to ensure that a person continues to do some form of exercise, particularly strengthening exercise, so they don't lose their muscle bulk and they're predominantly losing fat. Now, you've alluded to this a couple of times, but there are different brands of meal replacements that are out there, um, and also just some comments about what brands there are and issues related to cost, because I know that will be germane to most people out there. Yeah, there is a big range of cost. And often with that, sometimes does come a different nutritional profile. I guess the main one probably people know about is Optifast. That's the one that they often use for patients who need surgeries and things like that. That brand also has a lot of support on the internet and lots of information available. Um, there are other brands such as OptiSlim, there's Manshake, there's Aldi, and they all range in costs. So I think it's, as I said, worth um, taking, if you're interested, taking that product with you and showing a dietitian or your GP and saying, is this going to be right for me? What would be the average cost? And let's, let's work on the assumption that people might be having, you know, two meal replacements a day. What mm. would be the rough average cost for Optifast, whether it be a, a bar or a shake? Well, probably around $3.50 or something like that. Yep. Um, so I guess if you're actually replacing meals with these products, you may actually be saving money because if you're buying meals out or you're cooking large meals, that might actually cost you more than these meal replacements. So unless you're, I guess, providing for a whole family and it is an extra cost, this could be quite a cost-effective diet approach. Yeah, brilliant. Very helpful advice, very practical advice. Now, let's work on the assumption that someone's got on a diet like this Typically, how long is it before they're likely to see meaningful weight loss? And how long usually would you keep them on a diet like this? Mm. So meaningful weight loss is going to be different for everyone, as you know. 5 to 10% is what we're kind of aiming for for a lot of patients with osteoarthritis to get some clinical benefit. But for some people, they might get to 5% and say, you know what, I'm actually feeling great. I'm happy with my body weight and this is where I want to be. Um, but for other people, they may actually have a lot of weight to lose and they want to get to that that point. So I guess it depends what approach you have with the ketogenic style meal replacement diet. You could lose, you know, a couple of kilos in the first week um, and maybe even more. And that can be quite motivating. That sort of diet, I would probably say up to six weeks is, you know, where you might travel to. But I've heard of people going on it for much longer. But you would again need some sort of supervision to make sure you're getting enough nutrition. Six weeks is quite a long time without your normal diet. So it's, it's a big effort to get there, but if, if you can, then that's going to be a, a huge effort for a lot of people. 
the less intensive where you're kind of just replacing one or two meals a day, the rate of weight loss is likely to be slower, maybe one kilo a week or something like that. So, but you can continue those diets for a very long time. Yeah, and I think one of the other things Rosie's alluding to there is try to individualize this as best you can um, and make sure that the goals that you set are realistic and are consistent with, I guess, your need to expend energy and, and uh, be active as well. Now, let's work on the assumption that you've had success, you've lost weight, then you get to your next challenge, keeping it off. How do you encourage people to go about doing that? Yeah, I think what you were just saying before about setting realistic goals is a very important thing in that in long, the long term, continuing to set yourself goals, whether they're around your weight or whether they're around your food or your activity or something in your life that just keeps you motivated, setting uh, smart goals or, you know, the realistic um, achievable goals is really important. And other things, I guess, is with, with these meal replacements is we know you can actually continue to use them in the long term. There's been some research to show that weight maintenance can be achieved with using these intermittently um, throughout, you know, years to come. Brilliant, brilliant. Now, so... If we're looking at trying to encourage people uh, to lose weight, how do they monitor uh, the gains that they've made? And how often would you get a person to weigh themselves, for example? Mm. I mean, are there any simple ways that we can encourage people to set goals? So, yeah, I would suggest people not weighing themselves every day. And weight is often a big thing for a lot of people throughout their whole lives particularly maybe women as well and i try not to really focus on i know it is an outcome for this patient group but trying to not weigh yourself every day and for that to be the kind of the main thing in your mind but maybe weighing yourself weekly or every couple of weeks and maybe writing down your progress on a piece of paper and also like we were saying filling out a food diary so you've got a bit of that accountability there it's always helpful as well to put some post-its around of, you know, motivating quotes and, you know, helpful reminders about your healthy eating as well to keep yourself going. And also, you know, sharing your weight loss with someone else. I've had a recent great experience working with a couple who are both trying to lose weight together and just seeing them bounce off each other and, you know, wanting to share the same healthy, healthy ideas has been really, really nice. Yeah, so I strongly endorse exactly what Rosie's saying. I mean, if you can find a peer to share this journey, that's great. If you can find a health professional that you work well with that can help coach you through that process and set realistic goals is another great way. So maintenance is often hard, and um, another approach that people take as opposed to the intermittent use of meal replacements is pharmacotherapy so there are drugs that are out there and where this all fails potentially consideration of bariatric surgery but we're not going to get in to that today rosie are there any other patient friendly resources or links that you might like to share that could shed further light on this topic yeah so uh, i think a great place to start is the um, australian government it's the eat for health website which has a lot of information about how much food we need to eat each day um, it brings it right down to the basics. Uh, there's also a lot of information on there about label reading and, and creating healthy recipes. Um, and it, it's really, really helpful in like a broad sense. Um, as we were saying before, um, the calorie counting apps are also quite a helpful place to start too. So MyFitnessPal or Easy Diet Diary, they're both, both two good ones. And then the Dietitians Association of Australia website also has some great resources and can also link you up with a dietitian as well if you're looking for one in the community. 
superb. Now, I'm sure within all of that, there are a whole lot of things that we didn't mention that we should have. Is there anything that I didn't ask about that I should have? Well, something I've been asked a lot is, is there a diet for COVID? Um, been asked that quite a, multiple times now. And I would say the answer is currently no, from what I know. I thought you just had to eat sunlight or drink disinfectant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. So on that topic, I guess it's important to think about the effects that COVID's had on our lifestyle and our diets. There's been some positive effects, I think, on people maybe cooking from home a lot more and spending more time with their family around the dinner table, which I think has been really nice to hear about. But maybe also some not-so-good things like maybe more junk food and more alcohol. So I just hope that people can really work together as a family and try and work on some of those things. Yeah, definitely heard a lot about more alcohol. And um, I think what they say is generally it takes about six weeks for habits to set in. And we've been in this COVID uh, semi-lockdown period for a lot longer than six weeks. So hopefully people don't get into those ingrained baby habits and they stick with them. Excellent. That's brilliant coverage of a very important topic and I think a very practical coverage of a very complicated area for many people. Now, moving on, what's the biggest challenge you have with your specific role right now and how are you going to overcome that? So for us in our clinic, there's been a big change in the number of patients we're able to see uh, because of COVID and, and um, you know, clinics being changed. So I think the biggest challenge for us is being able to see the same volume and see all those patients that we know are really struggling at home. They may be struggling with pain, they may be struggling with their work and their weight as well. So I think, yeah, that for us is triaging those patients and getting them in and seeing them when we can. Yeah, a, a big part of that too, Rosie, is obviously the shift for many people towards telehealth um, and, and remote delivery of care. Now, if you could do anything to improve health and healthcare, what would you do? This is the sort of aspirational Rosie we're after right now. Yeah, I'd, I'd really like for um, things to focus on diet for health versus uh, our physicality and, you know, thinking about mental health and all of that. That's something that I'm really passionate about. So that's something I, I hope that our focus kind of shifts towards. It's really, really important. And I think also, particularly in the context of osteoarthritis, not that we should necessarily just be focused on that as a single disease, but a lot of people with osteoarthritis have concomitant mental health issues, whether it be depression, stress, anxiety. And, you know, as you were saying before, that often ties hand in hand with how mindful and thoughtful they are and some of their unusual eating patterns and behaviours may, may tie closely into that. So yeah. really important point. Now, one of the uh, favourite parts of the questions that I get to ask people is why do you do what you do? What motivates you? I like seeing patients grow and, and develop their healthy eating skills, but uh, I just I like really enjoy um, seeing patients achieve their goals. That's a really big driving factor, and I feel like I have such a valuable role in their health journey and a part of the puzzle. And I think as dietitians, we're a bit like we've got a little toolbox, we've got a bit of a scientist hat on as well. And I really enjoy those two roles together and being able to tease out um, barriers and putting them all together in a bit of a plan. Well, I know you make a tremendous difference for lots and lots of people, so I hope you're encouraged by that and you continue to make those differences. Now, how do you continue to learn in order to stay on top of things within your role? So I work at Ronald Shore in a department of incredible dietitians. I'm continuing to learn from them every day, so that's something that is very valuable to me. 
recently I've spent a lot of time um, looking at you know webinars and papers out there particularly on the topic of the LED um, so really looking at the breadth of research that's out there and trying to formulate my own kind of opinions and at the moment we are um, in the midst of piloting a program in our clinic around those new replacements so that's also been a way of me learning and, and getting skills in my area. Um, you brought it up again so I'm just going to probe it a little bit further but the VLED, the very low energy diets. I've had a number of conversations with dietitians over time and they've, many of them have been a little bit resistant to the idea of meal replacements. What's your take on that resistance and how do you approach that with your peers, your, your fellow mm. dietitians? Yeah, it's a good point. I think because a meal replacement isn't seen as a food, so as dietitians, we're always wanting to encourage healthy eating with foods and that's something I still believe in. But often for particular patients, their ability to to use those foods to eat healthy is difficult and they may actually need to lose weight in a really quick time so that they can get symptom benefit just like with osteoarthritis. They may also have chronic conditions like diabetes, which with treatment with, you know, using these meal replacements can help them get there faster. So my, I guess my response to, to those people is that in the, in, at the right person at the right time, this is another tool that we have that we can use. Great, great suggestion, and I hope your peers are listening carefully to that. Now, if you could have a billboard with anything on it, what would it be and why? So I think going back to my feelings around, you know, diet and mental health and all that, I think that being kind to your body and your mind would be something I'd like to have plastered on a billboard. I think that's very important for people to, to consider. Hopefully we see more of that out there somewhere, the, the big rosy billboard. Now... Is there any one piece of advice, knowledge or wisdom you'd like to give to people with osteoarthritis in passing? I think it's something that this, uh, the physios often talk about in the clinic to patients is um, that every kilo of weight you carry results in a four to six kilogram of extra force through your knee joint. And so even a loss of just five to 10% can result in up to a 50% reduction in pain. So little goals are still really important um, for this sort of patient group. Really positive, inspirational message to leave us with. Rosie, thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciated. Wonderful practical insights. Thanks, David. That is all for this episode of Joint Action. If you like what you hear and want to support us, please rate us on your favourite podcast platform. Alternatively, visit the website www.jointaction.info to post a question, donate to our research, or send us some feedback. Between now and next time, please do take care of yourself, stay strong and stay active. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, check out www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.